Have you ever stopped for a moment to think just how magical and transformative coaching can be? In terms of just helping to shift somebody's mindset or shift somebody's perspective or to see themselves in a different way or have a different experience of themselves so that they realise that, you know, for example, a belief about themselves or a belief about the world that they have is not theirs and is no longer serving them and so is worth looking at and looking at with a fresh perspective. That, to me, is quite magical. There's still something wonderful about supporting somebody, kind of really connect with who they really are as opposed to who they think they are. Welcome to the Curious Coach Podcast. So buckle up as we travel around and explore the world of coaching. Here's your host and professional coach, Stephen Clements. In this interview edition, I got to spend time talking with Michael Cahill, a coach, trainer, facilitator, and someone who's gone on and continues to travel on a journey filled with curiosity, learning and understanding, not only about us as humans, but also a deep exploration of himself. In this interview, we discovered how Michael went from starting out as an equity analyst and then set off on another journey. We covered a range of topics that went from different coaching modalities, coaching presence, our left and right hemispheres of our brain, the importance of what beliefs you're holding about your client, the link between success and love, the unconscious mind, and then a sprinkling of embraining and a small touch on systemic work. And we still had lots more to talk about. Hopefully that might happen in part two in the near future. So grab a cuppa, sit back and enjoy this wide ranging conversation as I hand over to Michael to introduce himself. My name is Michael Cahill. I'm a coach, trainer and facilitator. And I probably use a combination of modalities in my coaching. I'm an NLP trainer. And so I've spent a lot of time studying NLP, NLP coaching and, and delivering NLP courses. I'm also a big fan of systemic coaching and constellations. I have time to think with Nancy Klein. I'm a time to think consultant. So I've done a lot of studying with Nancy as well. And I'm also a big fan of the Enneagram, which I found just a really, really powerful tool for self-awareness and self-development and growth. And so I tend to, with my clients, use a combination of these things that hopefully are in service of the client. Um, and I think they all overlap for me. And I guess it's kind of worth sharing that I've arrived at this place of kind of blending the Enneagram systemic work, NLP and time to think, having come from a perhaps unlikely background of investment banking. I was an equity analyst in the city for 16 years and studied economics as a degree. So I really have an understanding of what drives company performance and company share prices and how the stock market works and those sorts of things. That's my kind of first career as it were and I still have if you like that kind of analytical 
strength that I bring to my coaching because I think that's the thing as we evolve and grow we shouldn't discard what we've already used because there'll be a lot of strength in it and for me it's that kind of analytical uh, side of me that I find very very useful in a, in a coaching context and I left finance after 16 years um, as one of my senior bosses put it at the time to get my life back um, because whilst whilst you're very well paid in finance um, it is all consuming and I found it quite exhausting and interestingly most people kind of leave to go and join another firm and I just left the industry with absolutely no idea what I was going to do. I had a sense that I might end up teaching in some way um, but I had no idea and I, I was so tired I think this is important in a coaching sense I was so tired that I actually was very clear that I needed six months to kind of decompress as it were and rest because I wasn't in a position to take a decision because I think that's something that I think coaching can really really help with if you know it's the state we take a decision in that's as important as the decision and so I gave myself that breathing um, space and then I started teaching uh, well I started writing about finance and then teaching finance and then after teaching finance for a while I realized that I could be I knew my content but I wanted to be a better teacher and trainer and in doing that I asked a few people what would be a good way of me becoming a good trainer and a few people mentioned NLP neuro-linguistic programming and I really I'd heard of it but didn't really know much about it but an, enough people who I trusted said that it would help me become a better trainer and so that then started the journey. And at that point, I still didn't want to be a coach as such. I just wanted to be a better trainer. So I did my NLP practitioner and master practitioner and then NLP coach. And that's how I then grew into all of these other coaching modalities. Mm -hmm. Fantastic. And quite a change from starting off in investment banking, I would imagine. <laughs> yes. I mean, that's, that's for sure. I mean, I think one of the, reasons for leaving and, I, and I, I'm also very aware when we talk about our kind of past career we can make it sound as though it's all very linear um, but often these things are a series of accidents and things happening for reasons that you don't know um, but we impose a linearity retrospectively um, as Steve Jobs puts it we join the dots backwards um, but I think when we join the dots backwards, we can make it look as though it's all planned. And for me, it certainly wasn't. But I was aware that I was no longer enjoying working with spreadsheets. And I was enjoying much more working with the younger analysts coming through and, and working with them in a way that, you know, I might describe now as coaching, but I wouldn't have had that jargon or knowledge or not jargon, but terminology then. But that kind of whole thing about, you know, the spreadsheets and and also I think that I'd survived a couple of mergers and the bank that I joined was very relationship driven and the values had changed, I felt, and I was no longer enjoying it. And I think that that's kind of a rule for life for me. If you stop enjoying something to actually kind of really attend to that. And, and that's... I suppose that path that you started out started out on to become a better trainer through NLP 
and then discovering coaching along the way as part of that journey. Can you tell me more about that awareness or that awakening within the coaching part of you? Yeah, I think it was just that desire to, and it's interesting that even now my work is both training stroke teaching and coaching and I love both equally and I think that what was happening at the time was just that realization of the difference that the NLP was making to me in terms of things that I was learning that I'd wish I'd known in my life earlier and certainly things that had I known in my career would have made it much easier <laughs> if I was aware of them. And I think that this is what I've, you know, being sort of brutally honest about this is that I often find I'm kind of learning things after I've needed them. <laughs> I, I could have, why didn't I know this five years ago? You know, it, it, and, and, and I suppose part of me wanting to coach people is to kind of ensure that they learn things in a more timely fashion than I've managed to. And there is just something about the coaching in terms of just helping to shift somebody's mindset or shift somebody's perspective or to see themselves in a different way or have a different experience of themselves so that they realize that you know for example a belief about themselves or a belief about the world that they have is not theirs and is no longer serving them and so is worth looking at and looking at with a fresh perspective. That to me is quite magical. I think it, there's still something wonderful about supporting somebody kind of really connect with who they really are as opposed to who they think they are. And I think that distinction for me, you know, when you start realizing all the resources that we have that somehow we don't recognize in ourselves, um, we can't access for whatever reason. And one of the fundamental tenets or presuppositions of NLP is that people have all the resources that they need. And I think it's a, one thing saying it, and it's a very different thing really believing that and believing that the person in front of you is the one with all of the resources to help their own transformation and our role as coaches to encourage them to be in the right state to access those resources. And so that kind of raises a really interesting notion. I mean, one of the, um, uh, one of the people who was influential on NLP is a chap called Milton Erickson, and he had a who was a hypnotherapist, and he had a contemporary called George Estabrooks. And Estabrooks has this lovely line, which is that, the client won't self-actualize what we don't believe about them. So, i.e., you know, if we don't hold the belief that this is possible for the client, the client can't self-actualize it. And I think things like that, you know, are, are just massively liberating for me. I think it's just that sense of, you know, life can be much easier. <laughs> and flow much more smoothly than it often does for some of us. And I think that the coaching therefore became an interest to me to how, does, how do we support 
people to you know have easier lives express who they are and so you'll you'll notice i'm very much really talking for me about coaching at an identity level um, and i'm not saying that's the only level at which one can coach effectively because lots of people do great sorts of work at, at all sorts of levels whether it be behavior skills and capabilities and the like and, and but i just find that sense of working around values identity and purpose for me became very very exciting and interestingly things around values identity and purpose are scalable whether you're working with an individual a team or an organization and i suppose one of the things that or a major turning point for me i think was that um, being open and candid i um had spent before going on my coaching journey i had spent 10 years in uh, psychoanalytic psychotherapy and that for me and often nlp could be quite dismissive of psychotherapy um which i think is extremely unfair because i had a fantastic uh therapist and it really helped me enormously and i think again therapy can be dismissed as a talking cure whereas to me i've really experienced it as a relationship cure it was how to be in relationship with somebody and how to be in better relationship with myself rather than just talking and so i was aware of that um, schism if you like and i think that what can happen not in all branches of nlp but some branches of nlp there is this dismissive approach towards therapy and i was that sat uneasily for me and when i was really exploring the nlp coaching i genuinely had uh, a sense that because of my experience um, in therapy that the unconscious mind wasn't being paid enough attention to and i think that can be a trap think particularly early in our coaching careers is that we can almost think that it becomes overly cognitive and i think that if the client could have sorted it out cognitively they would have done so you know definitionally um and, and milton erickson who i've mentioned you know he has this great line that the client is your client because they're out of rapport with their unconscious mind and so for me i just felt that my nlp training to that point hadn't quite done enough on the unconscious mind and that mapped onto my experiences in therapy and so uh and i was also aware of this distinction between the left hemisphere and right hemisphere it was something that had interested me very much and so i became very interested well how can we introduce the right hemisphere more in coaching and i knew that i wanted to do that um and i wasn't quite sure how to do that and this is one of those things which again sounds linear but I, I really had a deep sense that I wasn't working with the unconscious mind enough. And for the unconscious mind, by the way, I think it's just, you, you know, you can just also just have that much more simply expressed as the body. You know, I think that's one of the great contributions when you're working with the unconscious mind is, is what's all the information the body is revealing that we should be paying attention to. And so I, it, it, I just have one of those great uh, moments of fortune really that i was having this thing about this coaching 
and the way I'm doing it is not fulfilling enough because it's not working with the unconscious mind as much as I would like and it's a little bit cognitive for my taste and where I want to go and um, I then received this email which was about a training course and it was called coaching the unconscious mind for a change how, how fortuitous <laughs> it was just, well exactly you know and it was kind of like and i didn't know why i got this email because i had no relationship with the company who'd sent it to me um and i hadn't heard of the person giving it who is somebody who's now kind of my friend and coach and one of the best nlp trainers out there in my view and I, so I did, but I didn't know who he was. I just knew that that title uh, was exactly the direction of travel I wanted to go in. And, but unfortunately it clashed, clashed with some corporate work I was doing, so I couldn't do it. And a day before the programme, my corporate client canceled and they'd never ever canceled. It was just like, wow. And again, it, as I say, it's just one of those things. It all looks linear, but there's just all of these series of little things where, if you like, the field was kind of collecting and amassing. And I went to do this four-day programme on coaching the unconscious mind for a change. And that really highlighted to me what was possible with coaching and that my instincts were right. So again, I think that's a tip for all of us, really, is the importance of following your thread that was my interest, you know, the unconscious mind and the right hemisphere. And I just wanted to follow it. I had no idea where it would go. As I say, I didn't even know who John Overdurf was. I just knew that this course just seemed to exactly nail my, the thread of my interests. And so that then led to a a deepening experience with NLP and appreciation of the unconscious mind, which continues in various manifestations now. Mm. I suppose what's occurring to me, um, and if we can take a slight pit stop, I'm curious around how you position this at that stage to your coaching clients especially in the, the corporate world where there, there, there is a very analytical cognitive aspect to it. And then coming at it from you know, the unconscious mind and NLP and everything else, they nearly seem to be opposites. So how, do you, how were you positioning it to your clients at that stage or, or, or was that a problem or? Yeah. <laughs> no, no I, I, it's, it's a good question. I think that the fact that I had, have an analytical mind and analytical experience and an experience of the context within which those clients were working, you know, so I understand the pressure that they're under, I understand the environment. Um, so when we talk about rapport, it struck me that, you know, which is very important, there are other things that are more important, but rapport is often taught as for coaches as one of the key things so what i had if you will was contextual rapport i really understood the context within which they were operating and 
you know, in NLP, we would talk about a pace-paced lead. So the fact that I could come from an understanding of their world and also highlight potential when they were ready to receive it. And when you're ready to talk about things, real conversations can happen. And I think at a human level, I think many of the things that I've been saying so far, I think will register with people because it's, it's often what we might call the elusive obvious, you know, that we are all kind of in environments, say professional environments in the context of your question, in professional environments that we know are too cognitive. And we might be in coaching because, you know, our values aren't fitting in with the content, with the values of the organization. And so there's that mismatch. Now, I was very fortunate, a number of clients would, uh, knew me from the old days and liked what I was doing because I could then talk about values and purpose in a corporate context and it seemed to resonate for them in the roles that they had and this is the thing as a coach I think sometimes you just particularly say in chemistry meetings you just sometimes have to be brave and go with what you feel is right and I had a, a meeting around that time with a corporate client who was very senior in an organization and it became quite evident that he was very very analytical too and you know we had this very polite intellectual conversation that clearly was going nowhere um you know other than us getting on very well but it, it wasn't what he needed coaching on and I could see that he was very values oriented. And what was interesting, and I think this will resonate for a number of us, and a number of people that we tend to work with in organizations, is that he was in a very, very high position within this organization and was clearly still very, very unhappy. And so on the face of it, he, he was incredibly successful. You know, big city job, salary, you know, young family, and was feeling really pretty rubbish about it all. And that's the thing then, is that because I appreciated that, and I had left the city because it, I probably had felt similarly that I've achieved, but so what? You know, it's that coaching question where you've done all of this for the sake of what? And so he talked a little bit about success. And because, I just, at an unconscious level, i.e. my body, I felt we were dancing around what was important. And so I just, and I just knew that it was a chemistry meeting, I'm going to say something, and it's highly possible that I either get thrown out or he politely ends the meeting and I never hear from him again. And I just said, well, you know, it's interesting you talk about success, but, and I was using a phrase from um, a wonderful writer and teacher of the Enneagram and other things, um, a chap called Robert Holden. And it just was a phrase that just came to my mind when I was engaging with this potential client. And I just said, the important thing to bear in mind is if we don't meet again, is what I want you to consider is that if your definition of success hasn't got love in it, 
you need another definition. And this was, you know, senior city person, physically very imposing, very strong man and a very strong character, and a wonderful man. And he just burst into tears. It was sort of like, I wasn't being clever, but I think I was trusting that what we were talking about wasn't what needed to be talked about. And so bringing in that sense of feeling and, you know, and, th and this, I think, you know, and I've been having conversations with people recently about dare we talk about love in an organizational context, you know, some, you know, now this was an organizational context, but it wasn't, it was corporate coaching and executive coaching, but it just was one of those things. It felt that this needed to be said, whether I got the work or not. But I think it's that example really of, you can't think your way out of something you felt your way into. So he was feeling sort of really frustrated about having achieved so much and it not feeling fulfilling to him. And so we're in the domain of feelings, not thinking. And, you know, and I think therefore at an unconscious level, I had a real sense that he had strong values around relationship that weren't being met. And he was apologetic and I was thrilled because I felt now we could have a real conversation about what would this coaching be about, whether it's with me or whoever, we can have a real conversation now. And it became a very real conversation. I think it's almost like the more analytical we are, and indeed the more cynical we are, if you like, there's a sense that we need the connection with our heart even more. And it's almost like, you know, if I use the language advisedly, it's almost like he was crying out for that connection with his own heart. And I think that's often the case. Now, of course, it, it could have gone terribly wrong, you know, and at the same time, I think I felt I had sufficient rapport with his unconscious mind and what was going on for him and how it was affecting me to kind of introduce that notion. And he, he did hire me. Um, I've had similarly challenging meetings, you know, in chemistry sessions where I've really challenged somebody and never heard from them again. So I'm not trying to say I get this right all the time, but I think it, I think you have got to be prepared to go with what, you know, your unconscious, what is your, you know, my body was, this, this just isn't right. And I think that, you know, that's for all of us, what are the signals in our body letting us know about the interaction rather than trying to just use our dominant left hemisphere, especially in an environment like his that was very left hemispherically dominant. And I'm curious in terms of, have you always had that connection to your own body, your own feelings, your own intuition, or is that something that you've had to develop as part of that transition? I've had to work on my own stuff. I think it's the classic thing in coaching that we teach 
what we need to learn. And I'm very mindful of that. And so it's something I've really had to work on because my tendency is to be in my head too. So I could really recognize where this person was, you know, and that does give you a rapport in a way. But it's, for me, my journey with my own work, my own inner work has been to come into my body more, to remember I have a body, to remember to include it and to remember to connect with it. And so that's, that's still something I'm working on. And, you know, I think it's almost a great coaching question, isn't it? What is the relationship you have with your own body? What's the, you know, and how often do we do this? You know, what is the relationship you have with your own heart? Is it something that is kind of over there in the distance <laughs> that you occasionally check in with? Or, or it could be the opposite, that you're completely heart-centred. And then the clarity of the left hemisphere and the creativity of the right hemisphere aren't included as much as they might be. So it's, it's being aware of our orientation. Are we heart-led? Or as I, I use it, the language is, you know, some of us tend to go head first into things. And that's not always a great way to be because we're not present. It's only through our body that we are present. And I think whatever modality of coaching you wish to explore or talk about, you know, so whether it's kind of time to think with Nancy Klein or uh, for me, um, John Oberdorf in NLP, uh, some systemic people I've worked with, you know, John Whittington, Lynn Stoney, what distinguishes them, all of them, and characterises all of them is their extraordinary capacity to be present to the client when they're working. And we can only be present through the body. And I think that's why it's an ongoing quest for me and possibly for all of us. Because I think the in interesting thing about presence in coaching is it's not often taught in a way because it's a difficult thing to teach. Yeah, it's even a difficult thing to describe in some ways. You know, if, if like thinking about the ICF core competencies, for instance, there's a thing called maintaining presence or coaching presence. And yet even that doesn't necessarily do it justice because it's trying to put a cognitive description on something that's not very easy to describe. I, I, I agree entirely. I think presence in a way can't be described. It's beyond words. Um, so I accept that it's beyond words, but as an experience, we've all had it. And we've all had an experience of being in flow, which is, if you like, what we're capable of when we're present. And I think that some of the indications, and I think it's a great thing for as coaches to realise what are the telltale signs of not being present or what are the telltale signs of being stuck in our left hemisphere. And so, if you like, one of the characteristics, if we're stuck in our left hemisphere, is pace. We tend to, you know, the mind moves quickly and the soul moves slowly, as Bert Hellinger says from 
um, the constellation world, you know, and I think that that's a really important distinction because the body is slower than the mind. And I think that if you think about that or feel into that, I should probably say, if you feel into that from a coaching perspective, the fact that the mind moves quickly, if as coach we're not recognising that, and our mind wants to move quickly as well, let's say the client is dealing with something that's quite challenging and we're uncomfortable with the emotion that they're experiencing, is we might want to move, our, our mind might want to move on as well. And that's the distinction I would make, is that the mind wants to move on. But that doesn't mean that the body has processed it. <laughs> so, you know, so this capacity, to, you know, the mind moves quickly and it wants to move on. But we know from a coaching perspective that sometimes the only way through is through. Moving on just means excluding it. Whereas actually it needs attending to. And the feeling behind it certainly needs attending to. And I think the other characteristic, as well as pace, I think the other characteristic when we're not present and our left hemisphere is very dominant, is uh, there's two key, there's a number of, but there's two key things that I would say are really useful to be aware of for ourselves and indeed our clients that they're manifesting uh, this left hemispheric tendency is the, the tendency to think in either or terms. It's A or B. And we know, you know, you'd never let a client take a decision from that place because two's a dilemma and three's choice. So you don't want them in the state of the left hemisphere reducing things to a dilemma. I do A or B because they'll never take a good decision in that place. And what will tend to happen is I've chosen A, but I wish I'd done B. So there's that scope for oscillation. You know? So if people aren't achieving goals, you know, maybe there's some oscillation going on between all oh, the, the either or that characterizes the left hemisphere. And related to that, and I think this for me is a really big piece of coaching and presence, is that when we're not present and we're in our left hemisphere, we tend to be mired in the problem. So everything is about the problem. And we keep telling stories about the problem, which tend to be quite circular. And we can have a tendency in those situations to believe that the problem is much bigger than we are. And as I was saying at the outset, the problem is bigger than our resources. So if you think about the, this linguistically, is we make a mountain out of a molehill, which tells us that we've lost perspective. You know, we've narrowed down on the problem and all we can see is the problem. Whereas actually we need to step back and have a much wider perspective. And if you like, and I think this is the, a, a key for me, I think, which fuses a number of the coaching modalities I've explored, is you never want the client taking a decision from the, from the place of the problem. You want the client in the energy of the solution and the energy of being present. You want the client to take the decision from there, where they've got real options. They've got a real sense of possibility 
they're welcoming thing information that's new and different because that's the other thing about the right hemisphere if we kind of get clients present in their body and accessing their right hemisphere the right hemisphere embraces paradox it embraces uncertainty but especially if you think about coaching and being about change for us to change we need to embrace what's new and different definitionally and the work of the social psychologist, the Harvard social psychologist, Ellen Langer, argues that, well, there's an evidence, as an academic, there's an evidence base for this. She's measured it and she says that we qualitatively have better lives and live longer if we have the capacity to focus on what's new and different. Hmm. But that's part of coaching, isn't it? Is that you've come to coaching because you're fed up with the old and familiar. So you need something that's new and different. The challenge is, is the left hemisphere is comfortable with the old and familiar. Yeah. And so for me, that's the thing then about, you know, and there'll be lots of modalities that explore this, but it comes back the capacity to be present rather than caught up in the beta brain waves, you know, that high beta brain waves. And when we've got high beta brain waves, where is our breathing? Our breathing is high up in the chest, less oxygen getting to the brain. You, you can't take a sustainable decision from that place. And that's why I think a lot of the somatic modalities of coaching, you know, and whether it's mindfulness, breathing exercises, coming back to the body and getting the breath down. Because one of the things that I think for me, I've really learned somatically, and I think it's really useful for coaches, is this whole notion that breathing level indicates permission, which I learned from Michael Grinder and when he does group dynamics. And it's really stayed with me that if, if your client is breathing high, you can't ask them a great question because they're not going to hear it. They're not going to receive it well. And you're much likely, much less likely to be in rapport with them. So the higher the level of breathing, the less permission you have as a coach. So the, so the job then is, is get the breathing down to pace them to meet them with that high breathing. But you know the direction of travel is they've got to come back to their body. Their breathing has got to bring them back. And then as the breathing lowers, you've progressively got more permission. And it's, so it's these sorts of things for me, you know, make coaching very exciting. But it, and I think that's the, you know, some of the people I've mentioned, another great coaches you know and i'm sure you and people listening have coaches they really admire but i would suggest that what unifies them and connects them is this capacity to be really present mm. Mm. so in terms of that presence then that seems to fit very nicely in with the time to think work because i would imagine presence in a thinking environment is the most important factor 
I, I agree entirely with that. And I think that that's what Nancy Klein has done so beautifully. Not only does she embody it so beautifully, um, which is always compelling if you're a trainer um, or a coach, it, it, do you embody what you're conveying? And Nancy does so exquisitely. Um, and while she doesn't teach presence per se, she models it. And I think that's vital. And you're onto something really important. I think the 10 components of a thinking environment, when you follow those 10 components, you end up being present. You know, so the ease and the attention and the not interrupting and that listening from a place of inquiry rather than advocacy. Because I think that, you know, Nancy's work and her recent book about interruption, you know, just that notion that being present and listening from a place of inquiry rather than advocacy I, 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 it is to me just such an extraordinarily profound yet simple observation that most of us don't listen. We wait our turn to speak. And it's like many of these things that are, that are in inverted commas, natural. We don't yet necessarily get taught it. You know, where, you know so, it's, so to me, the question then becomes, well, who taught you to listen? You, you know what I mean? It, you know, and it's a really, you know, and if nobody listened in our family, you know, we learned to interrupt. We learned that if you, if, you know, if you didn't make your point, at, you know, at a certain kind of opportunity, if you didn't take up your opportunity to speak, you, you missed it because somebody else would come in. It's so vital. And it's and at that point between inquiry, which, which Nancy's really talking about, you know, so the whole thing about listening to ignite, is that profound belief that I was saying earlier about Esther Brooks, that we believe the client's thinking can take them to a place that we never could take them. That any question of ours or any thinking of ours will get nowhere near where the client can go on their own. And I think that's hugely validating of the client and it's accepting the client as the expert on themselves. And that all one's doing is, is when, when, it's, it, when I say all, it's really the paradox that Nancy refers to, is that without the quality of your presence and attention, they couldn't produce that level of thinking. And at the same time, you're completely irrelevant. And I think it's being with that paradox and accepting that paradox and accepting that actually the most useful thing I could do here is just listen fully from a spirit of inquiry. And I think you're right to, to pick up on the time to think piece because for me, that's, I probably learned more about presence studying with Nancy and, and the other great trainers of time to think because it's an outcome <laughs> of the 10 components rather than being it's it's you know it's not taught directly and that might be you know actually a really useful learning that sometimes things what is it that you need to teach in order to get the output 
you know, so what is it that we need to teach to arrive at presence, given that presence, as we've described, is kind of beyond words, difficult to define, and in itself could take us into a cognitive space. And interestingly, I mentioned the love word earlier, and Nancy always refers to coaching as an act of love, which again means that in effect, we're listening with our heart, not our ears. Can you really listen from your heart to what this person is saying and being with them? Because, and this is where the unconscious mind is so important, I would argue, is that the client knows how present you are to them. They may not describe that, they may not think about it in those terms, but they really feel it. And they really feel it if you're listening with your heart. They really feel the beliefs you have about them. And of course, all of this, you know, if we haven't worked on our own beliefs about ourselves and what we're capable of, we can't show up seeing the client and their potential fully. So it's, it's, so it's that interesting sort of dance, if you will. But a lot of that is, is down to their unconscious. And I think it's often, for me, I, you know, with coaches, I think it's a great thing to, you know, when the client is talking about where they want to go, can you see them? and experience them in the future, living their fulfilling life or living the life, you know, or in, if you want to keep it within the time to think frame, can you see them living the true and liberating assumption fully and joyously? And the more you can see them in that place of the true and liberating assumption being lived, and the more you can hold that in your heart, they're much more likely to actualize it. Mm. And I think that, again, as well as the presence piece, I think that, uh, that the notion of replacing a limiting assumption that we hold about ourselves or the world we operate in and replacing that with a true and liberating assumption, I, I, uh, uh, which combines with the incisive question, I just think is, for me, just such a brilliant discovery you know, and the role of assumptions. Because for me, with my NLP hat on, and I think what Nancy does beautifully, is by converting a belief into an assumption makes it much easier to work with. And then furthermore, I think the great, and very simple, but it cuts through so beautifully, turning the assumption into a verb what are you assuming that's stopping you from is so much better than the question, what's stopping you from? Which many coaches will use, oh, okay, what's stopping you from? But the thing is, is if somebody asks me, what's stopping me from doing something? I can think of thousands of reasons. But, and, and, and you know, this comes back again to Nancy's insights and the neuroscience backs this up, that the brain works best in the presence of a question. In which case, as coaches, it's incumbent upon us to be very purposeful and conscious of the questions we're using. So rather than what's stopping you, what are you assuming 
that's stopping you is a completely different question. And it gives us agency because I think a big part of coaching is connecting clients with their resources and their agency in the world. And what are you assuming is one of those just devastatingly simple questions where you go, you know, that really is brilliant. And I think it's, um, so for me, you can see that the, the time to think piece um, has been a, a, a very powerful piece. And again, it really celebrates what the client is capable of on their own, with their own resources and their own thinking. And I think it's that piece as well from Nancy about, you know, just how far can we let the client run with their thinking? And that I think is, is really powerful. So I think what can happen for coaches is that we feel we have to do something. We feel we're paid to ask great questions rather than being paid to be present in a way that the client has never experienced before. And those are very different. And I think as coaches, when we start out, I think, you know, we think, oh shit, I bet I'm supposed to have a good question here. <laughs> you know, rather than I need to be fully present here. Yes. It's, it's, it's this Tim Galway, I think, talked about it when he was um, writing the inner game of inner game of tennis it was about as a tennis coach he realized that his clients got got on so much better when he didn't tell them what to do yes and then that questioned his worth as a you know why are they paying me to be a tennis coach yes because you do so much less you know and that's the belief isn't it we're always it's always a belief that we should be paid for more whereas you know if you think about belief change and assumptions in nancy's methodology is the assumption that more is better valid? And invariably not. And, and those of you listening who do energy work, you know that more is not always better because there's a limit to what the client can absorb and work with. So it's, you know, how much less can I do whilst being more present? How much less can I do whilst really holding the potential of the client in my heart, the, what, the, who they can become? And can I see them living the true and liberating assumption and the difference that will make to their lives? If I can really see them in that place, then that, they, that then is their unconscious mind. You know, because effectively in, in this context of coaching, we're talking about a relational field they are picking up that from the vibrations in my heart. You know, that's what's so important in this work is that that's, that's the relational field that's been created. And it is all about the field, you know, and, and I would say that in my own journey, and I think this is something that Nancy does talk about, and I've had to, um, if you will, go deeper into it because of my cognitive style that I started with is one of the 10 components is feelings and for, for me that's been a, a kind of almost like completely separate journey into really understanding feelings and 
Also, I think in a way, in my own coaching work, is that I've tended to have, because of my cognitive approach, I've tended to want to understand things first. And I think the invitation in the 10 components of feelings is that actually the understanding comes from having the feeling first. And then you've got a totally different level of understanding. But I've had that the wrong way around. And, you know, I have to be honest about that. And that's an ongoing work for me is actually being with the feelings. And there are lots of feelings one doesn't want to be with. You know, but all of those feelings, whether it's grief or anger, all of those feelings in a way are our gateway back to love. You know, grief that it's somebody we've missed or something that we've missed that we've loved. And so being with the feelings and realising that one could hold those feelings and be with those feelings and the body can be with them is really, really powerful because... As Maturana says, love is the only emotion that expands intelligence. So in which case, you know, for me as a, someone who kind of sees themselves as a thinker first, there's an invitation to a much bigger field. There's this field of intelligence that, that love holds. You know, so that it's, it's then this whole thing about, well, what does love want you to know? And I think what love wants me to know is that I'm going to understand more if I'm connecting through love than, if I, than rather than me trying to understand love. Yes. I suppose I'm curious, actually, when, when we talk about that field... Two things spring to mind. One is about systemic coaching or, and constellations, and the other one is about embraining. So I'm wondering which, in your journey, which came first? In, in my journey, the embraining came first. Um, I was introduced to um, the work, the book, um, which is a great book by John Overdorf, who... Um, I attend um, some masterclasses he does and he is always updating his material and he was looking at coherence and the head, heart, gut brains because John is very somatically oriented himself. And so I discovered through John's teaching and then studying with um, the people who teach the embraining um, work, just the extraordinary capacity of coherence, you know, that when the heart brain and the gut brain are involved, the difference that makes. And also the different functions that they have, you know, so that that relationship part of us, that processing feelings part of us, that understanding of what's important to us is all a function of the heart brain. And, you know, and I say having things in the right place, you know, that's a very systemic thing. Is everything in the right place and in the right order? And it strikes me as important that you're often in a situation where, for those of you in organisations, where head office is talking about values. 
But of course, values are heart-based. So if the organization is in, in connection with its heart, if the people within the organization are not in connection with their heart, the values then are a cognitive construct. Because at their worst, values, all values are an abstract noun. You know, so we say, I think something like 80% of FTSE 100 companies in the UK have integrity as a value, but what does it mean? What does the heart say is important about integrity? What's the relationship dynamic about? What are the behaviours that let me know that this, this value is really lived within the organisation? So there's an example, if you like, of the left hemisphere often trying to do the work of the heart, you know, well, okay, well, we need value, so let's do this. And then what the left hemisphere does is it introduces a lot of targets to determine our decision-making. Well, we need to hit this target and we need to hit it in the next quarter. So the organization then is mobilized around addressing this target in the next quarter which probably has nothing to do with the real performance of the business. But importantly, from a coaching perspective and a coherence perspective, this target has got nothing to do with the values that should be driving the decision-making and nothing to do with the heart that drives that. And so if one starts looking at this, let's say the corporate sense or a coaching sense, and I think that's what's nice about the embraining piece is that it is scalable in a way. But the key piece, is that when you look at decision making is are we including the heart and the gut in the decision so how many of our clients have kind of known at a gut level that something really shouldn't be done but we've kind of been educated out of that to let the head brain or i tend to probably more than embraining, I differentiate left and right hemisphere. And that's partly the influence of John Overdorf and especially the influence of Ian McGilchrist. So the left hemisphere feels that it's on its own. It's intrinsically separate and it hates uncertainty. So it tries to create certainty through things like targets. But then look at all the organizations that have chased targets and ru ruined their reputation because they've trashed their own values. And so in decision-making, and this is where the systemic work, and I, as you know, I'm very, very taken with systemic work, is, and I think this is a, something that sits very nicely with the embraining, but it's taking it a step further in a way, is to actually constellate the head, heart and gut brains when you're taking a decision. So have a representative for your heart, a representative for your gut, a representative for your left hemisphere and a left representative for your right hemisphere. And then have something that represents the decision or a way of being and just explore what, what have all these intelligences got to say about the decision you face. But notice now, you know, I talked about decision making earlier in the context of um, either or. Notice how much richer the decision is now. You know, when I say, well, 
you know, what, what, what does the heart brain have to say about this? And I think the great contribution from embraining is to encourage us to consider the somatic syntax of decision making. We start with the heart. You know, we start with our values and we start with our relationships. Because I think the concern is, is that as soon as the left hemisphere takes priority, it becomes about transaction, not relationship. And I think that's why a lot of organizations, people are struggling in them, is because they're transaction driven and target driven. Because I think the more target driven you are, and I say this as somebody who's written a, a couple of books on investment decision making, you know, so I know that targets are important, but they're an outcome. <laughs> of doing what you do well, they're not an end in themselves. And I think we've got confused. You know, I tend to use the metaphor that we've ended up managing the scoreboard rather than managing the business or being competitive in the game. And that's what targets in the left hemisphere have driven us to. And McGilchrist talks incredibly beautifully about all of that. What I think here is unifying embraining and systemic work is making a constellation of these decision-making parts of us these are different parts of us that we need to include because you know i've talked about the heart brain if we don't include the gut brain then of course the gut brain is about boundaries it's about our way of being in the world it's about our identity um, it's about our immune system. Isn't it interesting that COVID-19 is something that attacks our immune system and our immune system is in our belly, it's in our gut brain. It determines who we are, but also the gut brain is critically our connection with how we show up in the world. So if you like, it's the action part you know it's, it's the traction and action of the decision you know so for those of us who have a tendency to procrastinate or if you're coaching someone about procrastination i think it's really useful both from an embraining perspective and systemically to explore well is the procrastination because your heart isn't in it or is the procrastination because the gut brain isn't being mobilized and that information can surface if you were to constellate these separate parts. And, you know, and if you're working as a coach, you know, you can just get somebody to write gut brain and put it on the floor and stand in it, heart brain, and just stand in it. Just, and what could be more beautiful than deepening your own relationship with your own heart or your own gut? and really respecting it and including it, because the whole thing about working systemically is we include everything, whereas the left hemisphere wants to exclude everything. I think that's, that, for me, that was, you know, with having had the pleasure of training recently with, with yourself and, and John on Constellations, strangely enough, I've started seeing a lot more systemic connections you know, and I suppose that when you were mentioning earlier about leaning out, leaning back, what was resonating for me was 
it's very easy to be pulled forward into the problem, into the story, into the context, the transactional level. And then, you know, that first level of training that we all do as coaches is about taking that first step back and seeing the whole person and coaching the person. And then you take another step back and actually you see that person then as a system, head, heart, gut, left, right hemispheres, and then take another step back. And now there's that person, that system in bigger systems, multiple systems and everything that that means. And it's like, oh, wow, there's so much I don't know yet. (laughs) (laughs) Join the club. I think that it's an ongoing, for all of us, I think it's an ongoing inquiry. But you raise something quite beautiful, which is this notion that um, in this exploration so far, um, I think whether it's time to think or NLP, is that it's it's almost a kind of more psychological approach to coaching, if you will. You know, if I can think differently, if I can see it differently. And one of my great learnings and my attractions to the systemic work is that we are part of bigger systems and wider systems. And I think in my own work, I probably appreciated that the psychological dynamic was only taking me so far. And I think what can happen in coaching and what can happen with the issues we face is we're looking for a psychological solution to a systemic problem. I.e., I'm trying to think my way out. I'm trying to work out, but this is putting me in isolation from the system that I'm a part of. And so, again, without necessarily wanting to go too deeply into systemic work, although I'd love to, for those of you from a coaching perspective, just appreciating, as you beautifully put it, Stephen, that the person in front of you has this peacock's tail behind them of the systems they belonged to, and really appreciating that what motivates a lot of the psychology is the systemic desire to belong. And it's this desire to belong that I think it's taken me a long time to appreciate is so vital in working with our clients. And that notion of belonging therefore, and what we will do to belong is incredible. And The thing is then, is you can't necessarily use a psychological solution to an issue of belonging, particularly if the client hasn't got that concept of belonging in their psychology, as it were, i.e. it's unconscious, it's not something. And I think this again comes back to the start where I'm talking about the unconscious. I think one of the big unconscious drivers is the drive to belong or our response to not belonging and our withdrawing because it's safer. And so that question then becomes, you know, we were talking about, you know, Nancy's comment that the brain works best in the presence of a question. I think one of the questions, if your client is really stuck, especially if there's a repeating pattern in the issue they're bringing to you, is who are they being loyal to in repeating this pattern? Who smiles upon them for having this challenge or this difficulty? 
how is this difficulty that they are in or this way of behaving um, it might be a survival behavior you know and that might be from trauma from previous generations but i think it's a beautiful and generous and compassionate way of working to say, you know, who are you being loyal to in this? And I think it's a great question that just opens up the possibility that actually, um, it's a lovely book title and a very interesting book, but by Mark Worling called, it didn't start with you. You know, but I think that that, I think that frees us up to kind of go, hang on a minute, you know, I'm feeling a lot of things. So coming back to feelings as one of the 10 components, these feelings may not even be mine. These feelings belong in the system uh, and are a function of trauma in the system or things that went wrong or me identifying with somebody in the system to remember them, i.e. remember, to bring somebody back into belonging who's been excluded. And they might have been excluded because they did something shameful. And we, as a family system, didn't know how to include them because we didn't know what to say. You know, uh, the religious or societal norms at the time meant that you couldn't talk about it. So this person gets excluded and the individual in front of you is remembering that person by having these challenges. And so that move from the applied psychology of NLP to the applied philosophy of systemic work and looking at this in terms of where does the truth lie in all of this? And the truth lies in all of this in what we've been discussing around presence. The truth lies in our body. And that's why really understanding what's going on somatically is vital because the truth is held in our body. You know, Bert Helling has, has this beautiful line, which I think is just brilliant. Um, and it, we, it could equally apply to um, our conversation around presence that lots of, you know, things like kinesiology work on that principle, that the body gets stronger the closer it is to what's true. And I think that again opens up this dimension. And I think that, so you can see now the distinction between the the psychology and the philosophy. The philosophy is, you know, I, I think, was it Pythagoras referred to as the love of wisdom. And I think along with love of wisdom, I, I want to say in this context, the philosophy is love of what's true. Not what we think, not the story we tell ourselves and not the psychology of all of that, but what's true. And I think therefore, you know, where my journey with coaching is currently is this intersection of the applied psychology, if you will, of some of the modalities and the applied philosophy of systemic work and bringing those together. And, and it, again, to be systemic, you can't exclude them. You know, 
there'll be times when actually a psychological intervention is what's needed. All I'm suggesting is, is in your beautiful way, is having that systemic lens enables us to step back and see the system and be useful rather than helpful. And that, again, I think is a, is a big shift in our journey for some of us that, you know, we might have been come into coaching because we've wanted to heal our own family system, for example. I think there's a big element of truth in that for me, that there's a lot of things that I'd like to have been different. And can I now, with all of this learning and this understanding, can I heal all that's gone before? And indeed, I had an insight at a systemic workshop when I was checking out that was even more kind of bonkers really if really understandable was can I heal the family system before I arrived in it you know, can you but you can see why someone would want to do that because it's out of love for all of the, the parents and family and what they've suffered but systemically it makes me the wrong size. It, it's completely foolhardy. It's exhausting. Um, but, you know, I'll be very open and honest with you here, that I think that's been a big motivation for me, wanting to learn all of this stuff. You know, and I say stuff, you know, I, I, you know my learning and growth journey has, has been very deep. But that insight is very freeing because now I can learn and grow, but I'm not trying to heal the family system. I can return the responsibility to them and that gives them more dignity. And I didn't, you know, and this is one of those things, you know, I was doing this unconsciously. I wasn't trying to be bigger than the family system. I just felt, I know something here that you don't. And if I learn even more, I can help. And there's a huge positive intent in that. And it's completely misguided. And, and I think, you know, so how can I hold that part of myself with compassion and free myself up? And I think that's what's important, I think, with the systemic lens is actually exploring our own motivations for being a coach are we trying to heal ourselves and you know as you beautifully put it that system behind us but looking at that it's too difficult so i'll coach you <laughs> and i'll fix and heal you you know what i mean which again is putting me in the wrong place it's making me too big all of course unconsciously all with huge positive intent. But how much more effectively can I coach knowing this and being in the right place and the right size in relation to my own family of origin and returning dignity and responsibility to where it belongs there and being in the right size in relation to the system in front of me, the client? Yeah. Is it? It, it, it nearly sounds like an interesting segue into the Enneagram, um, but yeah. <laughs> maybe if we, I'm just conscious of our time, so maybe if we, if we pause that thought 
and I suppose in some ways I want to, I'd like to wrap up this session and, and also just to say, Michael, I'd love to keep talking with you. And, and if I think if we could get a part two to this, because um, we've only really scratched the surface of um, constellation work and we haven't even talked about the Enneagram and everything else that you've been been exploring and experiencing. So I really would love to to spend more time if, if we could make that happen at some point. That would be a pleasure. Yeah. I suppose just to wrap up this segment then, what's grabbed your curiosity about the next piece in your journey of learning, discovery, exploring? I think that the next part of the journey, the, the exploration from here is, is in a way more of the same, but deeper. Mm. I think that there's the next part of the journey, I think is at a personal level, um, is for me to really connect with my feelings first, rather than to leap to an, an understanding or pretending to have an understanding more accurately. Mm. And that's a hard thing to admit as someone who yeah. spent a whole life trying to understand things to say, well, actually, I'm going about it the wrong way. I need to come into this by feeling more, being with my feelings more. Um, and I, as I say it, I can feel that as being challenging. Mm. And for them to then be able to work with anybody with any range of feelings that they are, that they are bringing and be present with that feeling that they're bringing because I've done my own work. And I think that that's really key is that those feelings need to be witnessed. Yeah. And need to be accompanied. And so for me, it's, it's that kind of real connection to my feelings. And I think the other piece of work related to that, Stephen, I think is given the embraining piece is that I think I've done a lot of work connecting with the heart brain, but I think the gut brain is still overlooked by me. And so there's a piece around what do I want to make happen with the understanding? And that again is something that is ongoing. And, uh, and of course, as we both know, the, the, the um, gut brain can take its time. <laughs> it can indeed. It can indeed. It has the longest dwell time, as, as you know. And I think that, um, yeah, and maybe that's one of the feelings I need to have is to be much more patient with the gut brain and to really connect with it. Because I think the gut brain, I think one of the things with you know, looking at the good brain and, and breaking it down, for those of you interested in these things, you know, you can break it down into its three constituent chakras. And those three chakras are really important, particularly the root chakra of being grounded, um, our belonging and our survival. Um, and I think there's some real, real interest in terms of my next journey around exploring the gut brain in that level of detail, you know, almost like, because the gut brain does so much, much of which we're not necessarily aware of. Um, and so I'd like to understand that more. 
deeply. And um, I, talking about this now, and I've had this conversation with someone else, is that um, I've, I've got this mad idea that, that wouldn't it be interesting to just constellate the chakras and what that and what that might teach us about how our body works together and you know how that whole sort of you know what Jung referred to as the kundalini you know the connections and having you know so coherence between the three brains but also those seven chakras because I think that that's you know really tuning into what coaching is about is what are we all what's possible for us when we're connected with all of those resources that we have within us Mm, what a wonderful thought and a, a wonderful experiment. <laughs> Michael, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you today. And as I say, really, really appreciate your, your time and openness and um, sharing all of your, your wisdom so far with us. So thank you. Thank you. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks again to Michael for his time today to share his own journey and thinking on many really interesting topics. I do hope we can pick up this conversation in a part two whenever we get more organised. In the meantime, if you enjoyed this podcast, please reach out and let me know. Drop me a message on LinkedIn or alternatively, send me an email to stephen at stephenclements.ie and that's Stephen with a PH. Thanks again for listening and until next time, stay curious.